Hey, remember the poo pond in Kandahar Airfield? Oh, yeah. I remember that green bastard. Did you smell it when you first landed? So, no, I didn't smell it when I first landed. When I got off the plane, I just got, like, Mike Tyson punched the face with a heat wave. I didn't expect or I didn't experience the poo pond until we had to march out to the range one day. It was like our weapons check and zeroing, and we did a couple little fun ranges. But we had to walk out out there and just seeing that decrepit green sludge and the little makeshift water fountain they had there it was just like ugh. like i don't even know why they had the water fountain in it you're expecting like swamp thing to come out and grab you and pull you in it's not like uh, mosquitoes could have like mated in that giant i think it's just thing. to keep i think it was just to keep it um like the flow going so it wouldn't become more stagnant than it was. Hi, I'm Mache. And I'm Matt. And this is episode six of Veteranix. Today on the podcast, we have my friend Nick Kerr. Nick Kerr served with the 2nd Battalion Princess Patricias from 2003 until 2011. During that time, he deployed to Afghanistan uh, and participated in Operation Medusa. Uh, Since 2011, Nick has served with the Canadian Scottish Regiment out of Victoria. Nick, welcome to the podcast. You've got a bit of a complicated answer to this question um, because you've been out and in and then back out and then back in again. Uh, but do you want Technically, to Technically, us- I didn't get out. I just uh, rolled right over from the reg force over to the reserve. Ah, okay. And yeah. so uh, when did you get in and uh, when did you component transfer? I served with uh, two PPCLI uh, out in Shiloh, Manitoba from 2003 to 2011. And currently from May 2011 uh, to now, uh, I'm a member of the Canadian Scottish Regiment in Victoria. Uh, how did it feel like knowing that you were leaving uh, the Reg Force? Um, it's usually a 50-50, I feel, that guys either have a plan or they just want to leave. But no matter what it is, they feel excited and they feel happy. And then it usually takes about, I feel, it usually takes about the second or third year once you've either left the military completely or, in my case, the component transfer. You really start noticing there's things that you miss about the military or the full-time military. How was your first year being out of the reg force uh, in uh, in the reserves? Like like civilian side, like with my new job and I had a plan, I was going off, I was on cloud nine. It was amazing doing the reserve stuff. Uh, like the beginning was, it was pretty cool, man. It was almost kind of like being a volunteer firefighter, like you go up when you can. And they, they preach that, you know, you're, you're, civilian job comes first and if you if you're not working like you're just a your typical living in mom's basement playing video games eating hot pockets service they want your attendance to be as much as possible but they always say your civilian job comes first so it, it was good man i had a like my first year first second year i had a i loved it it was really good it was just giving me that that enough fix of infantry that i left behind keep me satisfied 
So when it comes to work, you did a couple of pretty interesting things. Uh, I know that you're heavily involved with uh, Highway of Heroes uh, on the volunteer side, uh, but uh, you also were a volunteer search and rescue technician. Can you tell us a little bit about that? When I moved back to Victoria, I was uh, a corrections officer, and I did that for about a year and a half, and that's like when I started noticing things about the civilian world and civilian workforce that was really not making me happy. So on my course there, I met a really good friend of mine. Uh, he was actually ex-British commando. Me and him hit it really off. We were on the same corrections officer course. So after there was things that we were noticing in the jail, we were not really liking it. He asked me if I wanted to go with him, and we got a job offer, offer up north doing private security for a couple of the uh, higher-end uh, oil companies. And from there, uh, life was great. We were making great money. And then we found out that they had a side uh, a side uh, department of the company that we worked for. And hmm. it was about standby rescue. And so we were like, oh, this is pretty neat. We started reading about it. found out that the company was 80% uh, owned and operated and pro-hiring veterans. So we sent them an email and asked them, like, hey, you know, we do this for the security side. Like, would you guys be in? We maybe work with you guys on our days off, and they would, they said, "Yeah, we'd love to have you. We need to know some of your background in safety and rescue, or uh, confined space, or rope stuff." And we were both like, "Yeah, you know what? We're pretty um, limited to it, but uh, we can go and get some stuff." So me and my buddy just on a whim drove up to Alaska and took this uh, 14-day. Uh, advanced rescue course that went from everything from avalanche to swift water and rope rescue. And we came back and we shot the guys uh, an email like that Sunday night. Monday morning we got a call and they said, hey, be on the 11 o'clock ferry to Vancouver. You're on the course. <laughs> we were scrambling wow. to get over there to do it. So once we got over there, we, uh, as we walked through the door, um, this big, big guy, um, bald guy, had a U.S. Marine tattoo on his arm, and it turned out he was one of the um, main guys that started the company. He started that's where we're from, and we hit it off. And there was a couple guys in the back that heard us talking about being a Patricia. Three of them said, what battalion? And I said, second, and all three of them said, hey, we're from the battalion. These were guys that were older than me, but it was just by coincidence, and these guys were on the, uh, on the same course with me. So, like, skip ahead a bit after that, and after really liking the rescue work, uh, I decided to branch out to my local volunteer search and rescue team and threw my resume to them, and, yeah, they were more than happy to have me. And from there now, it's been about six years since I've been involved with search and rescue. That's um, awesome. I've, I've progressed quite a bit in the, in the realm, too. I actually now have a seated position on the national board uh, for honors and awards within Canada. I find that courses, and this isn't search and rescue, but more interesting, adventurous courses, I'm thinking specifically of my scuba diving, half the guys on my course were vets. I just, we like to keep doing interesting, you know, physical stuff once we get out. Leaving Reg Force, your uh, your family and your relationships, what did that look like? Did those change at all? Leaving the rig force was a very dark time in my family. I come from a generation of Patricias. And I came back 
from alert and i noticed coming to back to the battalion and this was about the transition between 2000 and, or this was about the 2009 2010 and a lot of my like i lost maybe 60 to 70 percent of my company coming back from afghanistan from guys just getting out and didn't want anything to do with the army anymore or putting in an ot to go to a different trade so when 2010 came around and i came back from alert and i had a great time up there and you're on first name basis up there it's like a party but you're also working hard but everybody you're treated like an adult and treated like a person and then coming back to the battalion i was rolled into charlie company and these were nobody i knew and back when i was getting ready for tour charlie company was the, the company for like a lot of the shitheads and the troublemakers because a company a Company, B Company were spooled up for the two O six tours. Yeah, that's right. Charlie Company became like the dumping ground a little bit. Yeah. So then Charlie Company got their turn for the O eight tour and they beefed it up and there was good dudes in there. But none of these guys I knew there had to been like maybe four to five guys gone through as a battle school that I didn't know. So I'm in there. And I start kind of making a couple friends with some of the people. But then then I'm noticing there's these dudes that are probably that have been promoted to master corporal or sergeant within maybe four to six years. And none of them I know. And I'm coming in and I'm getting a secondary talk to. Like they're obviously weaning out the shitheads and yelling at guys for not showing up with polished boots or polished cap badges or being five minutes late or ten minutes late. But I'm also getting the punishment for it. And I'm like, okay, I, I don't, this is fucking really bothering me now. And uh, this is what it's going to be like. And I've had like six PLQs hold on me because they were canceled. And so I, I just at that time, and I also was going through a really bad depression. And which could have been slated with my PTSD. But at that time, I decided I was like, no, this, I'm, I'm done. And I want to look through. Uh, for something in something different. So I chose, I made some phone calls and some civilian friends of mine that work with corrections let me know that they were hiring. So I went that route. And to go back to your question now, I remember making the phone call to my dad and he let me do most of the talking. And then at the end of it, I said, so what do you think? And and from this day, I'll always remember, my dad said, you're a fucking idiot, and he hung up the phone on me. And so from then, like, I've had a really rocky relationship with my parents. And my dad has always been a hard guy. Like, I look back as a kid, yeah, there, like, he did some great things, but he was just always a fucking asshole. But that was the epitome of my falling out with my family, left right there. So when things got really dark and you were kind of feeling depressed and maybe starting to question your mental health a little bit, uh, did you find that you started uh, drinking more? Or uh, I know uh, you were in, so you probably didn't get in any drugs or anything like that. But No, I, I was never really a big drinker. And, like, you know me, Maddie. Like, I was a hermit, and I stayed in the shacks pretty much my whole career. Yeah. And the transition, what I found then in my civilian world, that if I would have kept the way I was going the shacks, and being alone and I think maybe that was a point of my depression too because you know after being on tour and being so close to everybody living together and to this day I and mental health has no idea what was going on in me but I remember when I came back alert I'd be in my room and 
I didn't want it. Like I was losing interest in working out. And like, that's the only thing I had was I, I wake up, go to work, go to PT in the morning, go to breakfast, back to work, do what we did and get off work, go work out and then do the day over again. And the only thing I really had looking forward to each year was being on the baseball team, which I loved. So when summer came around, I was happy, but this time it really switched. And no, I, I was never really into drugs or alcohol, but I think when, I think maybe I turned a little bit to alcohol, like was when James Arnell died and I was, I was pretty sad there. That's when I turned to uh, alcohol, but I caught yeah, myself. You guys were really close, eh? Yeah, we were. But I caught myself doing it, and I just stopped cold turkey right there. Like, I, I don't think I've ever had a problem with alcohol. And to this day, I've never done drugs in my life. Can we touch back on that conversation with your dad for a minute? Sure, man. And I don't know your dad at all. I, I mean, I understand sort of harder, tougher male, um, for a lack of a better word, role models. But what, uh, to, to me, what he said is insane. You know, I, I can't understand it. So, I mean, if whatever you're comfortable, just giving some context for that. The lack of filter that my dad would have would really affect the relationship with us. He didn't take shit and he always uh, said what was on his mind and... You know, him also being an ex-Patricia, like, I think it really hurt him that I decided to leave. And the, the way I am right now in my life, I look back at what he said and I see what he means. Like, let's be honest, <laughs> being in the military, the reg force, it's like the best kept secret, easy job in Canada. And every, like, movies portray the military to be so hard. Like, there is times that it's super fucking hard. But other times, like when you're just in garrison, it's just like, hey, what'd you guys do today? And our typical answer is, oh, nothing much or, oh, nothing. But when literally it is nothing, like you'd move some crates around or clean some weapons and that's it. And we got, we get paid 60 to 70 grand to do that. So I think that's what he was going on about like, hey, how could you just give up an easy job like that? And also you're breaking tradition. Was your dad, was your dad a lifer? Like, did he retire from the patrols? Yeah, he was a lifer. So... Oh, okay. He did like uh, 14 or 15 years with Trishas and then he switched over to a construction engineer. Right. And then he did he did the smart thing. He finished at his 25, or he finished with 25. And then as a carpenter in the military, they offered him a civilian job uh, to stay because if he would have kept going, he would have been posted, but they wanted to stay in Victoria. So they offered him the master carpenter position there out at Rocky Point. And he took that. So smart thing for my dad, he actually ended up with two pensions. Right. So he, he got well taken care of and he thought you were throwing that all away. But what's what son wants to ever hear their dad calling him a fucking idiot on a very big decision like that? Yeah. I mean, I, I've had close, but yeah. Um, uh, Matt, you were there actually when my dad called me stupid for joining the military. Yeah, no joke. We're sitting having breakfast in the in the morning, and you know his dad's talking to me like Mache's dad's like a you know a typical Eastern European dad, right? And he's yeah. like, "This is why we moved to Canada so that he wouldn't have to join the military." And here he is, he's being a fucking idiot joining the military. <laughs> I heard the interview there, and I I was kind of relating to what you said, and yeah. but I I know that 
your dad was probably being in on a on a different aspect though, right? Yeah, exactly. Because joining the military there was is probably a completely different story back then. Yeah, they they were forced conscription, so you know everyone was yeah. desperate to get out. Um, switching gears a bit, when did you first realize you had PTSD? Um, so it came twice. So when I came back and started getting these very bad feelings at night, like clockwork, around the time I would go to the gym. Right. And it would just hit me around like 6 p.m. all the way till 9 p.m. And this really bad, almost kind of like heat waves or something just going all over my body and, and putting me in a state of uneasiness. And, and I have no idea what it was. And the only thing that mental health um, could think it was, it was extreme panic attacks or anxiety or something. So that went on for a while. Then probably my next uh, thing that I noticed would probably be around 2012, uh, I started getting very angry and violent. Uh, and um, it was definitely, it should have been an indicator right away. But I definitely pushed it to the side and let it get worse. So it took a couple of my friends to convince me to go in and talk uh, more about what was going on in my head and in my, in my life uh, with mental health. So I went down to the base in Esquimalt and requested to talk to somebody about it. And it took a little bit of time because I told them I was, they knew I was a reservist. But then I told them this was for, you know, things that happened when I was in the reg force. And then after that. Um, it was just really easy. Right. So you didn't deal with it right away. Um, who did you open up to the first time when you started talking about uh, your mental health? I reached out to a couple guys that we served with. And I was very, I was pussyfooting around, you know, like I was worried and scared. And like I, one of my biggest flaws is like, especially when I was a battalion, I worried, I would always worry more what other people thought and always fall into those stereotypes of like, if you were this or that, you'd be labeled this. So I was really very cautious about the questions I'd ask or advice. So I tried to ask people that knew me, the, the person I actually was, so that they wouldn't judge me and actually give me legitimate questions. And then I found out, or legitimate answers, and then I found out they were also dealing with stuff on their personal side. Yeah. So it made the conversation, it made the conversation really. I do remember that about you, Nick, like you were always very worried about, you know, you're a sensitive guy. I know a lot of guys that joined the military uh, are sensitive guys, but we, you know, we put up this, this front, right? Um, yeah. This tough guy front. Uh, but I know that you were always sensitive uh, to how, you know, other people viewed you or whatever. And a lot of people, especially, you know, somebody with a chip on their shoulder kind of capitalize on that, right? And almost pick on you a little bit more. So I can imagine how difficult it was for you to, to say something to somebody. I just, I found battalion, you know, the, like 80% of the time it was amazing. But I found it to be, and, and I guess it also goes back to the stereotype of, of the type of people that join the infantry, yeah. that I found it to be so immature high school the way people would talk to each other or interact 
you know, it, it like it literally is high school. Like talking behind guys' back or picking on people, or it, it was just uh, any other trade that they would not allow that in a workplace because they treat it like an actual workplace. This was like a fucking zoo in a high school. <laughs> so, how do you think uh, your mental health issues, like PTSD, uh, how do you think that it's uh, affected, you know, uh, your relationships now? So that was the second indicator with the anger. And I think my last relationship, which, which is the one that really hurts me that I lost, I was also dating another military member. And and I, and I really see a lot of my dad in me when it came out to be like this too, that uh, we would go for like a game of golf or go do something. And I don't know if it was just me expecting more of her like to be better at something or if that was the military or infantry in me. But I definitely, I, I did a lot of stupid comments or anger or get in a lot of fights about things. Like it eventually ended up one day that we got in a fight and just the really shitty um, coincidence that we started yelling at each other. And I said something like I, I crossed the line by saying she the cop at my, at me and missed me. And hit against the wall, and just by shitty timing, um, the landlord's wife came and knocked on the door to give us our mail. And she <laughs> heard and almost—I think—I don't know if she saw it, but she heard everything. Like, oh, um, here's your mail. <laughs> oh no! So after that, that was that was that was best. That after that fight, that was the time that I was like, I need to go talk to someone. Right. And uh, how was your sleep at the time? Uh, I don't think I've ever had any problems with my sleep. It's definitely one of the biggest questions that they ask. Um, I think the only thing that I have problems with my sleep is that I either need something in the background, like a, a background noise, or I need to wear earplugs. Uh, uh, especially being after tour, we slept uh, at Bob Wilson. We had one of those sea uh, cans. Seacan uh, refrigerators, and the diesel engine was constantly going, and that was something that my mind was used to having, uh, especially when I came home. So, if I didn't have any background noise like that, like a rumbling or just something, or even music, I, I had a hard time sleeping after tour from that. How did you find uh, your energy when you first started noticing? You're saying that uh, you'd start to feel it when you were going to go to the gym. Did you feel it? Uh you had a little bit of a lower energy uh, once uh, you started to realize that you had some, some problems with your mental health? I don't know if it was just lower energy. Like, I guess there, there could have been a bit of that, but I think it was more of the, the interest factor just went down. The What's the point or why even bother? Like, my mind just wasn't really into it. Like, I, th I think the energy was there, but I just... I just felt mentally drained and I just didn't want to even go there. It could have been also a little bit of a factor that uh, I didn't want to go to the gym and run into anybody. Like I didn't want to see anybody either. Yeah, that makes sense. And how did you, how did you deal with it? I mean, other than talking and getting yourself checked out, is there anything you tried to get yourself out of it? Yeah. So I didn't want to do any medication like, it really scared me to see some of the guys um, 
I'm not going to drop any names, but a lot of the guys of the battalion I could see that were on meds. And this was around the beginning stages, too, of the medical marijuana coming out, but more the, the pills, uh, guys that were popping pills. Like, I could see the, see the boys, and they looked like walking zombies. And yeah. they'd be very they'd be very up and down in their in just in their faces you could tell their levels of energy like very up and down and I didn't want to I didn't want to do that because I think it would have made me worse so I, I sat down with the medical staff talked to them like what are the alternatives so none of nothing that they really suggested that gave me an interest I, I decided to just think about it myself and just analyze like what's causing this how can I make this better? And I found out that it, I'm alone at this time and this time. Maybe I need to do some stuff and, and be involved. I started, you know, slowly branching out into volunteer stuff. And again, that was like search and rescue. And then I started heavily to other things. And by the end of it, I was actually at one time volunteering with 17 different organizations at once. So... I know that's a little extreme, but, um, and most people would be like, how did you find the time? But everything, all those different organizations had different times and sets of uh, dates of the month to show up. Like none of them was like every night or something like that. So it all just worked out great with my schedule. And to be honest, like I had a lot of free time still doing it. And I found that I was so busy and I was interacting with people and making more friends that my mind just you know, just stayed on the path and it felt great. Like I haven't had any bad, bad stints. So you mentioned that your relationship with your family was deteriorating for a, a bit. Is, was this filling that gap for you? No, I don't think so. I, I feel at the time right now I'm good. Like I don't have any interest of right now of talking to my family. And, and on a side note, it's been about five years since I talked to them. Right. Do you, th do you think that you were filling the gap that you had, you know, living in the shacks and being around the guys all the time? Um, and uh, that sense of community, do you feel like you kind of lost that when you left the Reg Force and this is a good way to reconnect? It definitely about the feeling that I got with the teamwork and being around people, like especially my search and rescue team. Like um, when we get a call to go, it's almost like having that call, you know, like mount up, we're going out on a patrol. Yeah, your QRF, right? Yeah, almost kind of like a QRF, buddy. And a lot of the members, too, are also serving military guys. So you can relate to a lot of them. They can relate to you. We just make, kind of make little jokes and funny things about the civilian people <laughs> because that's what we do. But, um, yeah, it definitely gives me, uh, gives me a little bit of that adrenaline that I had um, to a small extent of what you'd feel like going on a patrol uh, in Afghanistan or something like that. Your life's not in danger, but getting that sense of like, okay, we got a 300 foot wall here and we're going down to load this guy up on a uh, package and we're going to bring him up. So there's a little bit of that. So I, I get the impression that this volunteering is pretty therapeutic for you. You can take it in a whole different, a uh, whole bunch of different perspectives here. Like one, you're doing a great thing for your community. Yeah. Two, you're making new friends. And yeah. three, you're just, you know, get, getting out and getting some sunshine and actually doing something instead of, you know, sitting, watching the TV, watching Netflix all day or playing Xbox. 
So it sounds like you've got quite a bit of uh, like quite a bit of great coping mechanisms and you know a, a really good network of people that you can rely on. But uh, you know, yeah. what does a bad day look like now? I don't know, man. That's a really hard question. I think the only bad day that I would have would be if I found out another friend committed suicide. And how about anniversary dates? Do you have trouble with those? I ask you that because yesterday was the anniversary of, of uh, three of our guys uh, being killed. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. was September 3rd. I don't know when this episode will come out, but, um, you know, that was a pretty rough day for us. Anniversary days, um, they're not as bad as they used to be. Um, some people say that time doesn't heal, but for me, it kind of does a little bit. Like, it, they're never forgotten. They never will be. But the pain and the feeling of the pain slowly starts getting forgotten. And I haven't, I, I haven't felt really sad or emotional uh, on those anniversary days. But the way of the year that will take me back where it's like all of them combined will definitely would be Remembrance Day, especially, you know, if I ever hear pipes or Trump or the last post, like it's instant waterfall right there. I start crying and I think about it. And that, that, that also kind of, I don't think it's a PTSD thing, but uh, I did eight, I did, I was all there for eight funerals. So having that in the back of my mind too, that like, I remember seeing the things and, and this and the atmosphere of when I heard the pipes in the, in the, in the last post at the funerals too, has a little bit of, um, uh, a little bit of a feeling from that too now. So are you the pallbearer for funerals from task force 108? Uh, yeah, that's when I started. So me and another individual, I can't remember his name. We signed up, uh, they asked anybody, they, they would ask guys if they wanted, or they would pick guys or ask if they thought that they were mature and their drill was good and they looked good in dress uniform to be a part of funeral service. Myself and another individual were asked to be um, two primaries and that would be on the Paul Bear teams every time it would happen. And I remember that we we got to a point where that we were so good at it, they would have a new sergeant come in and do it, and we were basically teaching the sergeant all the drill movements and the proper hand actions and what to do and when to do it. That's heavy, man. Yeah, it was. Um, probably the two emotional emotional about being the pallbearer would be uh, it was definitely the mother seeing the mother and seeing her facial um, reactions and not so much a sad thing but more of a pride and honor thing which was a very emotional uh, like a happy emotion but it would definitely still make you tear up would see, would see the repatriation whenever we were in a town and the funeral convoy would roll through the town. Um, hundreds and hundreds of people uh, would be on these selected roads. And the radio stations must have let it know in the newspapers too. But people would, uh, you know, go on the overpasses. And, and, and the fire trucks and the police cars were there too. And we would see people literally pull over, jump out of their car really quick. Like either give a salute or 
uh, stand at attention. And I think the biggest one was when I did Terry, uh, Terry Streets was one of the most memorable one I did. And I always remember being in Surrey and there was a dump truck that basically really cut off the convoy really bad and he almost caused an accident. And I remember the two police, uh, I remember there was two police cycles ahead of us and the two rear cycles came up on side of them and they both pointed at the dump truck and the two rear guys came up and just like almost military-like, uh, the two guys went after the dump truck and forced him off the road and one of the bike cops stayed in the front and the secondary bike cop went to the rear to do the rear. So I was like, oh man, that, that was awesome. And like just, you know, at that time it gave me that, you know, like brotherhood teamwork uh, feeling. And like I remember being on the bus scene and for some reason I just kind of teared up doing that too, watching that. So Nick, when uh, when you said you went to, uh, you know, your, your friends told you to get yourself checked out, was that a temporary thing dealing with it on the medical side are you self-medicating in the sense that you're doing your own thing now or is there still somebody you talk to in a in a more professional medical scenario so it's kind of a funny story i, I didn't know like i was getting ready for a selection package and i went into the base hospital i'm currently at uh, i'm currently posted right now at cfb edmonton and i went into the base hospital to get my medical uh Thing, uh, medical side all checked out and they let me, uh, they told me that I had an open file I still had an open file with my um, mental health and I wasn't aware of it so it prevented me to handing in my selection package so as of right now I'm currently they, they need to run me through like about five or ten uh, therapy sessions just to get it done before I can do anything, so I got slated onto a TCAT. But before that, like back when I first got in, like I was seeing a, th- uh, seeing a therapist. Uh, at the beginning, I was seeing him, uh, I think it was like twice a week, and then it got weaned down to uh, once a week, and then after that was uh, twice, a, uh, twice a month. Nick, you're one of the most resilient guys that I know. Like you're somebody that can get knocked down a thousand times and you're going to get up a thousand and one times. What motivates you to succeed now? Um, I'd have to say it's a, a hand or a bunch of different aspects. Like one, I, t- I take what I've been trained as a, especially being a Patricia, like keeping that namesake as a person, like, you know how it is like can you look around saying like, I'm a fucking Patricia. I can do everything or anything. So I definitely, I take the type of person that was trained to be being military. I also take, or I think, you know, from the friends that we lost in Afghanistan, like I, I think of James in a lot of ways about things that I do in my regular life. And I guess also I maybe use my father a bit, like trying to be a better person than he was to me, or the type of person he also was. I know, man. So we asked this question of everyone, and you know, if I could go back to the first episode, I'd be giving a different answer today. <laughs> but Nick, are you a member of the Royal Canadian Legion? Yes, I am. And tell me a little bit about that. So, um, 
even though I do kind of talk a bit uh, bad about my family, we do have tradition. All my grandfathers were members of the Legion, my dad was, and a lot of the volunteering that I do also has a hand in with the Legion. I also volunteer at a veteran's home and part of it, uh, part of one of the jobs there at the veterans homes is uh, some of the veterans are actually in really good condition and are able to walk around and go in the community if they want to go out for day trips and a part of their day trip is they like to go down to the legion and have a beer so i join them down there when i go that's awesome yeah do you think that afghan vets should become a member of the legion mm. I don't think it's more of a, an Afghan, Afghan vet. I think it's just more of a modern Cold War. The Legion is what the Legion is, and you can take it or leave it for what it is. And you have to realize that I, sh I know that a lot of people are, are a little frustrated that most of the Legions are run by civilians. But the fact is... The Legion is there to be challenged by anybody. If you're upset with the Legion being run by a civilian, put your name in the put your name in the box next year and run for the presidency then. A lot of people will bitch about it, but they don't want to step up and actually do it. That's so kind of the way I, I felt think too, right? Legion, yeah. These a lot of the civilians have been so dedicated to it for years, but yet a lot of veterans are upset that it's run by civilians. But it just goes back to it be like, hey, man, well, if you're a little upset for it, you and six of your buddies go down there and you can literally, with six to eight friends, you can force the ballot on your side then if you're that upset about it. At the end uh, of our podcast, what we try to do is shout out one organization that's doing a great job for veterans or working with veterans. Do you want to shout out any of the organizations you've worked with or do you want to shout out a bunch of them? Feel free. Go right ahead. This is your time. One that I would like to shout out, which is definitely in my top five uh, favorite organizations that I volunteer with, is uh, uh, the Highway of Hero, Heroes Living Tribute Campaign. Uh, it's a campaign dedicated to planting a tree for every fallen Canadian service member from Confederate time, Confederate all the way up until now. So their goal is to get about hundred thousand plus trees planted in the uh, area of the highway of heroes there uh, uh, the 401 out in Toronto Nick thank you so much uh, for joining us on the show today we really appreciate it thank you Nick okay so now it's time for a little bit of listener mail do uh, we have a jingle for this we could make a jingle for it do you do you want to sing a jingle no <laughs> I know some of our favorite podcasts do have a little bit of a jingle. Yes. All right. Let's, let's go for it. So this one is from Bick Anthony Dexter. He says, hi, guys. I'm not Canadian, but a Brit now living in New Zealand. I got out of the military as I married a Kiwi. My transition to Civvy Street has been a hard one, especially when you move to a country that doesn't really have an army or promote it enough. They have a defense force that's made up of a couple people that treat it like a Civvy job. I miss the military and my military family, and listening to your show kind of lets me imagine that I'm there spinning dits, and he puts in brackets to let us know that that means talking, about Afghanistan as if I'm there. I did four tours to Afghanistan, four tours of Iraq, 
and tours in other countries such as Bosnia, Northern Ireland, Kosovo, and Africa. I think I have PTSD, which wasn't brought on from those countries. It was the breakup of my marriage and being in a country I don't want to be in. I'm here because we have two children. Anyway, guys, keep up the good work. Kind regards, Anthony. Anthony, thank you so much for your service, man. Before we get hate mail or people get upset by that message, I don't think he was trying to slander anything that New Zealand forces have done in the past. I know that they're, uh, high, they were highly regarded. They did a lot of good work in a lot of conflicts, especially World War II, from what I can remember. So I'm sure he's just talking about maybe the current state of uh, the armed forces that he's not happy with. Okay, what else do we have? Canadian medic eight. What trade do you think he was? Uh, sick of hearing all about trials and tribulations of a conflict, as if that's the only place that you could get PTSD. Uh, an IOT of other people served in other theaters, saw pain and horrors beyond imagination. As soon as I heard Afghanistan, I shut it off, and that was just episode one. Thanks, but no thanks. Well, thanks, Canadian Medic 8. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, now, we, now we're going to do a good one? Yeah, I should do a good one. Honest and sincere from FSFDO. A very honest and sincere account of what these guys experienced in Afghanistan and after coming home. Both of the hosts are articulate and natural public speakers, so the show is easy to listen to despite the painful subject matter. Well, thanks for that. We appreciate it. And, uh, you know, if you've got uh, any uh, comments on the show, uh, Canadian Medicaid, if you want to check out episode two and three, they're, uh, they're maybe, maybe I have a boring story. I don't know. But uh, please leave us a comment uh, on Facebook uh, or uh, through the podcast's app. Okay. Thanks, everyone. So that's it for this episode. Uh, please uh, check us out on Facebook at Veteranex Podcast or online at veteranx.ca.